I invite you to take out your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 5. I hope you brought your Bible. Um, if you don't have one, I would be uh, really happy to give you a Bible. Just come see me after the worship service. And I know a lot of you just get on your, your phone. That's a great thing. Um, but if you're a person that likes to write in your Bible, um, it's helpful to bring it. I invite you to turn to Matthew 5. Last Sunday and this Sunday, we're looking at Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, one of the most important, I think, um, few chapters of the Bible because Jesus teaches about what real faith, real Christianity is, is all about. And uh, last week I told you about the, the truck that I saw, the, the light, the stoplight at Highway 6 in Pinelock, or someone had painted on the back of his or her windshield, I need autonomy more than I need God. And, and there wasn't an explanation, exclamation mark at the end of it. Um, but that's, that's what I thought that person was doing. Like, here's my exclamation. I need autonomy. I need, what does that word mean? Self-law. I need to be able to determine for myself how I'm going to live I don't need God bossing me around. Is that what Christianity is all about? Having faith in this God that just bosses you around and tells you how you're supposed to live and how you're not doing a good job at your current way of living. Is that what Christianity is about? A lot of people think it is. And that's why we need the Sermon on the Mount. It's not the easiest several chapters in the Bible to understand. Um, In fact, in our Bible in a Year series, we're just looking at really chapter 5 and not 6 or 7. That's something for us to, those two chapters, uh, to consider maybe after our Bible in a Year series. But we're going to look at chapter 5 today. Um, And let's just read. I'm I'm going to read 13 through 20. Jesus says to this crowd um, that has gathered around him on the hills of, around the Sea of Galilee, uh, most likely. Jesus says in verse 13, you are the salt of the earth. Tells this crowd this, you are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world, he then says. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but rather to fulfill them. For truly, I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. And therefore, anyone who sets aside the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly, they will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. 
For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will not, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. I'm going to give three words today that um, I think are helpful in helping us understand Matthew chapter 5. Calling, clarity, and character. And to put those in a, in a statement, Jesus calls us, he clarifies our path, and he forms our character so that we can live out true faith, true Christian faith. So Jesus calls us first. Number one, Jesus calls us to be salt and light. And when Jesus calls us salt and light, and this crowd performs salt and light, he is acknowledging something, and that is that the world is decomposing and dark. Both of those things. It's decomposing and it's dark. Yes, salt is a great flavor enhancer. Everyone, well, maybe not everyone, but many, many people if they're smart, like a good piece of meat with some salt on it. I know there's some people in here that don't eat meat, but anyway. Maybe put salt on something else as a flavor enhancer. That's a great thing. But in the ancient world, uh, salt was an important, a valuable, very valuable commodity because it was a preservative. So um, salt uh, was not necessarily valuable in the ancient world so that you could have well-seasoned meat, but rather so that you can have meat, period, in your diet. Salt uh, protected meat from decay. And uh, let me tell you, I think as a Christian, it's, it's, it's easy, it's somewhat easy to identify as, as salt and light. Um, well, let, me, let me just speak personally. I think it's, it's easy for me to get in the frame of mind, I'm salt and light, but think of myself if I were to be, you know, truth be told, I'm, the, I'm that salt shaker in the pantry or I'm the flashlight in the drawer. And that is not what Jesus had in mind in saying, you're salt and light. He's saying, get out in the decomposing and dark world and preserve and give light where there's darkness. So find places where you see darkness and and uh, destruction, death, be salt and light. Don't stay in the pantry. Get out of the junk drawer. Be salt and light. And then Jesus, Jesus gives another metaphor. And it, it, he kind of hides it in here. Well, he doesn't hide it in here. It's just kind of hidden in there. Uh, a town on a hill cannot be hidden. This other metaphor that Jesus gives. You're salt and light in a town or a city. Um... A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. A better way to hear that is a town or a city that is on a hill is not able to be hidden. You're going to see that city on a hill. And it could be that as Jesus is teaching crowds on the mountainside, he's actually able to point over to a city or a town on the hill. And everyone's like, yeah, we see it. It cannot be hidden. And when you look at it, It's either going to be a beautiful city or it's going to be an ugly city. But beautiful or ugly, it's not going to be hidden. You can't. It's a town on a hill. Um, 
salt, light, and a city. Why, Why this extra metaphor of a city? I think it's this. I can think of myself personally as salt, as light. Hopefully I'm getting out of the pantry, getting out of the junk drawer, actually being salt and light. I cannot think of myself as a city, right? I can be salt, I can be light. I personally cannot be a city. I mean, what's a city? You can think of a city in a couple of ways. You can think of it as, as the architecture, the infrastructure, the roads, the buildings, the, you know, the zoo that you like to go to. But what else is a city? It's, it's, the, it's the incredibly complex, necessary set of relationships, the, the people that constitute the city and all of their engagements with one another. That's what makes a city a city, not just people living next to one another. We're engaging. We're, we're, we're in relationships with one another, good or bad. And Jesus says, in those relationships, be a, be a beautiful city on a hill. You will be seen. And then, throughout this chapter, we're about to look at the next few verses, Jesus um, brings clarity. That's that next word. Clarity to how we can live out our calling as salt and light in a beautiful city. So number two, Jesus commands, his commands clarify, they bring clarity, how to live out our calling. So we're going to look at the, the rest of chapter 5, just going through various verses. So keep your Bible open, chapter 5, or your, your phone open to your Bible app. Jesus says, I've come to fulfill the law, not to take any of it away. I've come to fulfill it. In other words, I've come, to, I've come so that the law actually does what it was meant to do. Now we're going to look at. I'm going to give. We're going to look at five things that Jesus says. I'm going to give you five statements that we can reflect on on how to be a beautiful city, not an ugly city, on a hill. In, jer- in verse uh, 21, uh, Jesus gives, and, and with all these, he gives an old expression of the law, and then how he's fulfilling it. Uh, so in verse 21, Jesus says, "You've heard it said." that it was said to people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. So Jesus, check this out, he identified something that I would assume that hardly anybody in the crowds would identify with, being a murderer, I mean, when Jesus says, you've heard it said, don't commit murder, people in the crowd, well, yeah, tell us something we don't know, Jesus. Okay, let me tell you something you don't know. And then he chooses something that almost everyone in the crowd could identify with and says, this will bring you just as close to judgment and hell. Anger. Now, it's not... It's not just be, being angry that is, is so damaging. I think Jesus is pointing to something deeper, and that is hanging on to anger. When someone has been wronged and holds on to anger, it is a way of claiming 
and holding on to moral superiority over that person that you're angry with. When you hold on to anger, we're going to get angry in life. But when you hold on to anger, it's like you're just holding on, you're claiming on to superiority over that person that you are angry with. So if you are holding on to anger, ask yourself that question, why am I doing this? Why am I holding on to that anger? It's usually so that you can reinforce to yourself that you are right and the other person is wrong. Now, I know that that may be true all the time. I do know that there are deep hurts, deep wounds, deep wounds that you can experience. Wounds that I have not experienced in my life, but deep wounds where it seems like holding on to anger might just might be what you're supposed to do because the wound is just that deep. And I would say hanging on to anger over time will be destructive to you if you're hanging on to your anger. But aside from those deep wounds, there are smaller cuts, smaller wounds. And when we hold on to anger and hold a grudge, it's our way of saying, you know what, I am right I am right. I know I'm right. And listen, it's fun to feel right, isn't it? There is, there is nothing. Well, maybe there's a few things that make you feel better than to know that you are right. But when you are proven right in an argument or a disagreement, it's like, yeah. But here's the problem. You may be right. Indeed, you may be right. But when you compare your rightness with the rightness and the love and the purity and the holiness of Jesus Christ, when you, when you make that comparison, it's like you and the person that you are angry with, y'all are neck and neck for last place. And you may be slightly ahead, and that is nothing to brag about. So here's a statement that we can think about. Let go of anger. Letting go of the insistence that you are always right, or that I am always right. Let go of anger. And in so doing that, we're letting go of the insistence that I am, and I have to be right. And then Jesus continues. In verses 27 through 32, Jesus again uh, uses something that not many people in the crowd... uh, might identify with. Maybe a few more than being a murderer, but still, not, maybe not as many people would identify with. And he talks about being an adulterer. Um, so let's, let's read 27 through 28. Jesus says, You have heard it was said, You shall not commit adultery. And many of the listeners would be saying, Yeah, Jesus, we get it. That's not a good thing, adultery. Let's stay away from that. But then he says in verse 28, But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Yeah, Jesus says, if you've just lusted after a woman in your heart, you've committed adultery. And adultery here is being contrasted to sexual intimacy within the the bounds of 
marriage. And here's the difference. Human sexuality outside of a marriage, outside of marriage promises, is essentially self-serving, not self-giving. Outside of marriage, a sexual relationship is one of convenience and self-satisfaction. And you might say, wait, let me process through that because I don't know if I would agree with you. Here's, Here's why I say that. Because when the relationship is no longer convenient, this is outside the bounds of marriage promises, sexually intimate relationship, outside the bounds of marriage promises, when that relationship is no longer convenient or satisfying, I can just leave. And I've not broken any promises. Within marriage, therefore, sex is a self-giving act. It's not a self-serving act. It's self-giving. Within marriage, sexuality is a symbol of that lifelong marriage commitment. And you might think, well, Jesus, you just went on talking about murder and anger and took a right turn and now talk about something completely different and now the preacher has to talk about that too and but there's there's a lot of Jesus has a progression of thought here he's talking about human relationships and this is what he's saying practice self-giving love not self-serving pleasure and you can apply that to any attribute of human relationships. Practice self-giving love, not self-serving pleasure. In other words, do not treat others as people to exploit for your own pleasure or gain. Now remember what Jesus is describing, how to be a beautiful city on a hill. Then Jesus, again, seems to switch gears, but he isn't, and he starts talking about oaths. Verses 33 through 37. Again, you have heard it said that it's people long ago. Do not break your oath, but fulfill to the Lord the vows that you have made. But I tell you, do not swear at all. It gives an example. Do not swear by your head. Why? Because you can't even make one hair white or black. In other words, if you swear, it's just empty words. Just words are not... Keep it simple, Jesus says. Verse 37, all you need to do is say simply yes or no. Now, in one way, I think Jesus is asking us to consider that words are, they're important and don't use them cheaply. And oaths, often, these promises are just cheap words. You know, we use oaths just to tell someone, this is really important to me. How can I tell this person this is really important to me? I swear by all that's good, or I swear by my mother's grave, or you've heard those things. Maybe you've used those things. And we can get into the habit of using words cheaply. And I think God thinks of words differently. Because his words, what, what happens when God speaks words? Stuff gets created. Stuff happens. That's the power of words. Even our words the power to make stuff happen. Maybe not in the same way that God creates out of nothing when he speaks. 
that our words move. Our words can help shape what happens. Real stuff happens with our words. Words create. So don't use them cheaply. But I think Jesus is saying something else too. And he's saying, don't overpromise to secure someone else's favor. Like, don't try to say stuff to make yourself look better in their eyes so that you can secure their favor. Don't use your words, in other words, to manipulate. We can overpromise and attempt to convince someone that they can really trust us. That is manipulation. So, what we can take from this, see words as creative rather than manipulative, or use words to create rather than manipulate, if you like that better. But stuff happens when we use our words. Use them creatively for good instead of manipulating others. Next, uh, verse 38, Jesus says, You have heard it said, Eye for eye and tooth for tooth, tooth for tooth. That that old code for retributive justice. But then Jesus says, famously, but I tell you, turn to them the other cheek also. Now Jesus is not saying, let someone walk all over you. Um, That's not what he's saying. And he's certainly not saying stay in an abusive relationship. Just stay where you are so you can get hit and beat up on. That's not what Jesus is saying. He's saying, when possible, seek to restore the relationship. And one of the, of the, the things that can get in the way of restoring a relationship is revenge. And that's kind of what eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth endorses. Someone does something bad to me, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to, I have a green light to seek revenge. And Jesus is saying, no, I don't want you to do that. Do not seek revenge in order to feel superior over that person that did you wrong. So seek relationships, not revenge. When I focus on revenge, I'm focusing on my superiority over that other person. I have a right to be angry. I have a right to to get even with you. That person did something to hurt me. How dare they? But if anything, turning the other cheek is a way of staying open to a restored relationship, even if someone has done something hurtful to you. You You know, in ancient times, we don't do this as much in our culture and other parts of the world. They still do. Ancient times, they certainly did. Turning a cheek to a person, that was an opportunity for them to give you a kiss on the cheek. Great, one another with a holy kiss. Have you ever been in an environment where people are giving one another kisses on their cheek as a sign of bonds and friendship and love? Yeah. So if anything, turning the other cheek is an opportunity, hopefully, for that restored relation to happen and there to be a kiss on that other cheek, and not just a slap. So Jesus is saying, seek relationships and not revenge. And next in verse 43, Jesus says, You've heard it said, love your neighbor 
and hate your enemy, but I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And the only way that I can do this is if there is a fundamental change in how I view others. (laughs) To obey Jesus means I refuse to see people ultimately as existing for my benefit. Because look at what Jesus goes on to say in verse 46. He says, if you love those who love you, like if you do good to those who will be able to do good back to you, what reward will you get? Are are you not just like the tax collectors doing that? Even the tax collectors know how to show favors to others, be good to others, so that they can get a favor in return. When I do that, how am I seeing someone else? I'm seeing them ultimately as for my benefit. I'm going to do something good for you so that you can return the favor for me. And when I'm doing that, I'm just using others. Jesus says, do not love only those who will love you back. Instead, we can take this Write this down. Demonstrate love as a gift, not as a transaction. A transaction is when I give you something so that I can get something back from you. I would like to buy this, whatever it is. Here's $10 so that I can receive in a transaction something worth my $10. And you know, we love having good things done for us. That's a great thing in life. When someone does something great for us, isn't that a great thing? We love that. Now, someone throws you a surprise birthday party. That is the best thing in the world. One of the best things in the world. But resist turning displays of love as attempts to receive something in return. Because when we do that, it's not really love, is it? It's not really love. So notice what so many of these laws are about. There are not so many. All of the laws are about how do we act towards one another? If we follow these commands, what are we doing? We're forming that beautiful city on a hill. A city that everyone would want to go and live in. Not, not the ugly city that is going to repel people from it. So these commands from Jesus, they're beautiful. But they, they can be overwhelming. They can be intimidating even. They can be frightening because they seem unattainable at times. Love your enemies. Don't hold on to anger even if that wound has been really, really deep. Don't feel the desire to impress others and to say some extra words just to you know, kind of work out a good scenario for ourselves. Get a little leverage. Come on. Doing those things seem so natural to human beings. But here is how real Christianity is different than just God believing that God is the big boss man in the sky to say, do this, do this, do this. It's really hard. I don't care. Do this, do this, do this. Here's how real Christianity is different. It's this. Jesus forms our character so we can show true obedience. Jesus is going to do something on our insides so that these laws from God are not chores. So here's a goofy story for you. In 1993, an organization known as the Barbie Liberation Organization switched out the voice boxes of three to 500 
teen talk Barbie dolls and G.I. Joe dolls. They switched out the voice boxes between those two kinds of dolls, put them back on the shelves, the toy stores. Parents bought those dolls for their kids, opened up that G.I. Joe doll, and he would say things like, it's fun to go shopping. And the Barbie doll would say something like, let's go rock and roll in that Cobra tank, you know. True story. Is Christianity about forcing yourself to act in ways that go contrary to your nature? Forcing yourself to do very unnatural things for you? No. Jesus has fulfilled the law in a way where the law is not a burden. How? You have to look at verse 20. The last verse that we read, looking at our Bibles earlier. Verse 20, Jesus says, Unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. Now, what do you think he means by that surpasses? Think quality, not quantity. Jesus isn't saying, okay, here's the amount of righteousness that the the, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law had. It's pretty high. And unless you get above that in quantity, you're out of luck. Jesus is not talking quantity, he's talking quality. There is a different type of righteousness that Jesus is going to give to you. It's the kind of righteousness that Paul talks about when he says that he does not have a righteousness of his own, but rather he has a righteousness not coming from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. It's Christ's righteousness. Christ's righteousness is his right relationship with God that comes through his perfect obedience. His his pure heart towards God is his perfectly loving heart and motives. And Jesus has this perfect righteousness with God. And that righteousness can be ours. Christ's righteousness. When you have faith... In Christ, you have Christ's righteousness given to you. And it changes your heart. And God's law is put on your heart. It becomes put on your heart. And you're able to live it out because you become a different person on the inside. Now, how do you get that? You get it by seeing how Jesus has fulfilled all of these laws in himself. See, he pursued self-giving love. He, used, he, he didn't hang on to his anger. He, he, he didn't use his words to manipulate, but rather to create a good future for us. He sought relationships, not revenge. And he demonstrated love as a gift. And let's just think about this last one. Let's see how this works. Demonstrate love as a gift, not as a transaction. Do you know that Jesus, is, that Jesus demonstrated his love as a gift to us, not as a transaction? He loved you, not, in other words, not so that he could get you to obey. Not so that he could get you to do this or that. That is not why Jesus loved you. He did not do so in a transactional way. And he didn't love you so that he could change you. Listen, he does change you, but he doesn't love you so that he could change you. And change, ultimately, it is God's job, not ours. 
If change happens, it's because God has changed you. You've changed yourself. And here's the deal. Because Jesus loves you as a gift and not as a transaction, if you don't change, Jesus loves you still the same. Did you hear that? And that change that you want for yourself, you're like, oh gosh, God, I, I want to change in this way. I want you to know, if that never happens, Jesus still loves you just the same. That is love as a gift, not as a transaction. And when you get it, that that is the kind of love that Jesus loves you with, oh, that, that opens up your heart for him to come in. So Jesus is showing us how to be that loving city. Oh, Hope Church, you are that beautiful city on a hill. You're the beautiful city on a hill. And I was thinking, this, um, we're about to close here. Um, I was thinking it is increasingly difficult uh, these days to act like a city or a town. I mean, it just is. Um, because it's so easy to stay indoors, inside, inside our own homes. You know how easy it is to do that these days? My son... College-age Luke made hundreds of dollars over the Christmas break being a DoorDasher. DoorDasher is a great thing. You just get food delivered right to your house. That's a great thing. That's a great thing. Um, but it's easier to stay at home these days. It's easier to stay at home working from home. That's a good thing. Stay at home, work from home, that's a good thing. But it makes it easier to be an island, not a city, not a town. Uh, churches, we've made it easier to stay at home and worship. And, you know, if you're sick and stay home and view online, that's a good thing. That's a really good thing. But it, it just makes it a lot easier to act like islands rather than be a beautiful city. And so we have to be intentional in being this city. So I want to just go over one more time with you. Look at your notes. Let go of anger. Be intentional about letting go of anger and pursuing self-giving love and using your words to create and to, to motivate and invigorate, not manipulate. And seek relationships, not revenge. And demonstrate love as a gift, as a gift, not expecting anything in return. And Jesus cheers us on and empowers us to live like that. And when we don't, he still loves us just the same. Let's pray. Lord Jesus Christ, you've, you've, uh, you are working among us. You are living in our hearts. You are here at Hope Church. And you have told us we are salt, we are light, and we are a city on a hill. And we ask through your grace and your power, through Christ present in us, may we be that beautiful city that shines your love, that radiates your goodness, where people come and they find healing and forgiveness in Jesus Christ as 
we are able to extend the love of Christ to them. Lord, thank you that you love us and then you've, you've called us to this. We ask that you would fill us with joy and that the joy in us will move us to commitment and inspiration to, to be that beautiful city. In Christ's name, amen.